Well, you know, when I was a uh, student in seminary, and uh, then a few years later, I, I did a graduate degree at McGill University, and uh, I have spent quite a bit of time in my life in the library, and uh, spending time in the library, uh, reading books, uh, doing uh, research for various uh, papers and, and classes. And uh, McGill in particular in Montreal has a very impressive library. If you ever get a chance to go there, it's actually two libraries combined into one building. It's seven uh, floors high. It houses uh, literally millions of volumes. And you go into that library, you can find and get your hands on pretty much every book that has been written. You can read anything you want on any subject in the world. And if it's not in that library, they can get it delivered. Uh, just within a, a matter of a few of a few days, and uh, what I came to appreciate about those massive uh, research libraries was the level of organization. Uh, a library of that size making it easy. You can look up a book on the computer, and uh, you go. It tells you the floor where you find it. You go. You find that book in a matter of like five minutes, and uh, you're out the door uh, with your stack of books. And I think most of us probably take that uh, for granted when we go to a well-organized library. But if you've ever had uh, enjoyed the experience of browsing at a library, even uh, the Welland Library here in our own town, uh, you really owe that pleasure to an innovative man named Melville Dewey. Uh, I thought it was John Dewey, but I I learned something. It's not John, it's uh, Melville Dewey, this man who revolutionized the way that libraries were organized. Before the uh, invention of the Dewey Decimal System, library books were given permanent places on the library shelf, depending on the size of the book and on the date that the book was purchased for the collection. And so uh, libraries were not arranged according to subject. It made it very difficult to find what you were looking for in a library, and there was no standard system of organization. So uh, one library could be totally different from a different uh, library, but Dewey's system changed the way libraries function and uh, made them uh, very useful, very enjoyable, uh, not just for researchers, but for the general public to browse. By numbering books, arranging the numbers books according to subjects, adding decimal numbers for the purposes of expansion, uh, libraries could expand the collection over time while keeping the books well organized and easy to find. And uh, this is a simple idea, but it it changed the world for the better, and we've probably all reaped that benefit in some way. Now, probably all of us, we've we've benefited from the innovations of uh, Melville Dewey, but I'm not sure how many of us jump up and down with excitement when we go and we see the, the Dewey Decimal numbers on the spine of your library book, or you go to a library, how many of you even think about Melville Dewey? when you go and uh, visit the library, probably none of us, and uh, I suspect that uh, many of us will feel the same way about the material we're about to cover this morning in 1 Kings chapter 4. I hope that you read the text in advance. Uh, You always will know what I'm preaching on because I preach through books chapter by chapter, verse by verse. 1 Kings 4 is a chapter in the Bible filled with lists Uh, filled with obscure Jewish names, filled with information that probably on the surface seems totally irrelevant for you as the modern reader. And uh, maybe some of you read a chapter like this and you say, why did God inspire and preserve 
these lists of, of names. Okay, so this is, this is not, uh, I think, a chapter that the children are going to be memorizing in uh, Bible memory. It's, uh, it's not a chapter that generally uh, makes us tremble with excitement. Uh, but the organizing principle underlying the chapter, just like the Dewey Decimal System, is something that we've all benefited from and that we take for granted. We actually don't think about it uh, consciously all the time. And that is the blessing of living in a well-organized society. The, you know, the blessing of going to a well-organized library but the, the blessing of living in a well-organized society, of living under the authority of a well-administered system of government. This is uh, a chapter in the Bible that actually helps us understand why God saw fit to institute civil authority and how the use of civil authority prospers a nation when it's being used rightly, when it's being used in the way that God designed it to be used. And so let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read the entire chapter. And I just ask you to bear with me as uh, I struggle uh, through the first half of this this chapter. 1 Kings chapter 4. says this, King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elahoraph, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and the king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had twelve officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim. Ben-Decker in Makaz. Shalbim. Beth-Shemesh. And Elon-Beth-Hanan. Ben-Hesed in Arubath, to him belongs Soka in the land of Hefer. Ben-Abinadab and all Naphath Dor. He had Taphath, the second daughter of Solomon, or the daughter of Solomon as his wife. Banna, the son of Ahilud in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beit Shean, that is beside Zarethan, below Jezreel. And from Beit-Shean to Abel-Mahola, as far as the other side of Jok-Miam, Ben-Gibar and Ramoth-Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. He had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Ido, in Mahanaim. Ahimeaz in Naphtali. He had taken Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Banna, the son of Hushai, in Asher, and Baloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. 
and there was one governor who was over the land. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the palace where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east, the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. His fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Well, over the past number of weeks in this sermon series, we've been considering the kingship of Solomon. And uh, you may recall from two weeks ago how the inspired author highlighted Solomon's great wisdom. Remember that Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom to govern the people of Israel and that God was pleased to grant that request to Solomon. And uh, chapter 3, the the part just before what we read, it concludes with this famous story of two women fighting over a child. And uh, Solomon, as the judge in Israel, he's presiding over this case and he's in this position of deciding which of the two women was the rightful mother of the child. And uh, because there was no witnesses that could be brought forward to testify, that case uh, would have been very difficult to decide. Normally, that would have been a case that would have been thrown out of court. But Solomon applies his God-given wisdom to the matter at hand. He is able, with God's help, to identify the true mother, and thus he renders biblical justice. And so that story of the two women, it's held up in the chapter as proof of Solomon's wisdom in the matter of justice. But chapter 4, the chapter that we just read, it continues actually in the same theme of wisdom. This is a a continuation of the same subject. This chapter continues to illustrate Solomon's insight into more mundane matters. Uh, This isn't quite as exciting to us as the story of the two women, but it's the same uh, principle. It's an illustration of wisdom. The point is to show us what happens when wise men are put into places of civil authority. 
And so what we have here in 1 Kings 4 is a biblical picture of a well-ordered society. This is a biblical picture of a well-governed, of a well-ordered society. And when you uh, browse through a well-ordered library, you don't jump up and down with excitement about the Dewey Decimal System, but uh, you'll know this, especially if you've studied in, in university, that when you've got a research paper due tomorrow and you go to the library to find the book, and it's not there on the shelf, and the librarian says, I'm, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but it's here somewhere, but uh, someone put it on, in the wrong place. It's in moments like that that you really come to appreciate uh, a well-organized library. In the same way, we often take good government for granted until such time as we are forced to live under bad government, right? We don't, we don't typically jump up and down with joy when uh, things are going well and when, when the government is being rightly administered, but we do jump up and down uh, when the opposite happens, when we're living under bad government. And so mundane as the chapter may seem on the surface, my hope, brethren, is that it opens our eyes this morning to the blessing of the wise and the well-ordered use of authority. This is a chapter that trains us on how to think about authority. What, we, what should we expect, really, from the civil government when it is operating according to God's design? The main theme of the chapter here is Solomon's wisdom as a civil administrator. And we're going to consider the message of this chapter under three main headings this morning. Number one, we're going to see the wisdom of planning well. Number two, the wisdom of remembering God's promises. And thirdly and finally, the prosperity that comes as a result of wisdom. So that's where we're heading uh, with God's help today. The wisdom of planning, the wisdom of remembering God's promises, and then the prosperity that results from the use of godly wisdom. Well, as we dive into the text in front of us, let's consider, first of all, the the wisdom of planning well. And this is really the lesson that comes out of the first 19 verses of the chapter. Now, the tendency, I think, when you're reading through verses 1 to 19 is to miss the forest for the trees. You get so caught up in all of the names and and you're saying, how do I pronounce this name? And who on earth is this person? And, And our eyes start to glaze over. Until we hit Ben-Hur, and we're like, I know who that is. There's a, a movie, you know, that's Charlton Heston. Uh, no, just, no. <laughs> Different Ben-Hur. Um, but you get, you get so caught up in the names that you miss the purpose, why they're actually here in the text. The purpose of this list, yeah, it, part of it is to give you a historical record. It reminds you that names are important to God. Uh, All of these people served well. God knows them, even though we don't know them. And uh, God remembers our names. Amen? There's been lots of of people that their names are forgotten. You know, you go to an old old cemetery, and uh, some of the tombstones, you can't even see and read the name anymore. It's been forgotten. But uh, God doesn't forget. He remembers our names. Long, you know, 50 years after I die, Probably my name will be forgotten, but uh, God remembers our names. So that's part of the purpose of the list. It is is in one sense a historical record, but that's not the main purpose. The main purpose is to show us the wisdom of Solomon and the way that he structured the government 
in the way that he surrounds himself with godly and competent leaders. Now, I think sometimes we think about monarchy, maybe you think that that kingship is a one-man show, but nothing could be further from the truth. Far from acting here as a solitary dictator, Solomon understood he would need some help in governing the nation. And you'll remember that the concern that was heavy on Solomon's heart, he He was a new king. He's considering the new office, the responsibility the Lord has put on his plate. And in chapter 3, verse 7, we've already studied the text, but Solomon prays and he says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, even though I am but a little child. And I don't know how to come in or to go out. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Now, you might might assume that a man like Solomon would just be puffed up in pride, you know, drunk on his own power and his own self-sufficiency, but but Solomon's not like that. His attitude is the opposite. It's this posture of humility, and he recognizes here just the, the, the sheer magnitude of the calling God has placed on him of his inability to do it without help. He says, I'm I'm not up for this job. I can't do this job without your help, God. And before Solomon asks anyone else for advice, he goes and he asks God. And he says, God, I, I am not up for this task. But having spoken to the Lord as priority number one, and he receives the wisdom he asks for, Solomon moves forward with that wisdom and he begins to take action. This is a good principle. Prayer is very important in the Christian life. But uh, action is also important. We pray and then we take action. Okay, Both things go together. God uses means to accomplish his, his ends and purposes. Solomon was a man of action. As we consider the immense responsibility placed on his shoulders, the way in which he delegated All of these duties of the civil government, I I couldn't help but think of that story that Andrew read earlier on. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter 18, the story of Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. Wouldn't uh, wouldn't we all love to have a father-in-law like that? A wise father-in-law that we could go to for this kind of advice or who could gently come alongside of us. But uh, we know the point of, uh, of that story. Jethro he saw what, what Moses immediately could not see. Jethro knew it wasn't wise, it wasn't practically possible for one man to oversee an entire nation all alone. That uh, it would kill the leader. Uh, it would kill the leader and it, it wouldn't benefit the nation. And that principle, by the way, that, that's true in a lot of different contexts. That's why we have a plurality of elders, for example, in the, in the local church. And, and there's three of us right now and with a church that's almost tripled in size in two years, that, that, that increases the responsibilities. And so we, we're looking to God to multiply that, to raise up uh, more shepherds for our flock here at Rosedale. So be, be in prayer about that. This principle applies in a number of different ways and, and contexts. But it, it would not be wise... For one man to govern a nation all alone. It would not be wise for one pastor to govern a church all alone. The pastor would burn out and the church would, would pay the price. And uh, 
So what we see here in 1 Kings 4, this is the practical application of biblical wisdom. Solomon is delegating the responsibilities of government to trustworthy and reliable men. Now the first name mentioned here in the list is is one that we'll probably recognize. It's the name of Zadok, the high priest. Probably an, an older man when Solomon first appointed him. And later on, it says here he was replaced by his son, Azariah. And then down the page, verse 4, Zadok is mentioned a second time alongside of Abiathar. We've encountered that name uh, also. Earlier chapters, Abiathar was deposed by Solomon because he had, uh, he had allied himself in a treasonous way with Solomon's uh, elder brother, Adonijah. And uh, he was removed from office for treason. It seems here that perhaps Abiathar repented. Uh, he may very well have repented and uh, was reinstated into his office as a priest. Now, the mention of the priest is very significant. Why? Because it shows us Solomon is respecting God's law in the way that he governs. In particular, Solomon is respecting here the principle that today we call the separation of church and state. All right, this is in uh, our statement of faith. As Baptists, we affirm this, the separation, this principle of church-state separation. Now, we're going to have more to say about that as we work our our way through the rest of Kings. For now, it's important to notice in the Old Testament, there are three primary offices that God ordained. You know what they are? The office of the priest, the office of the prophet, the office of the king. Those are the three main uh, offices that God ordained in the Old Covenant. Furthermore, we, we note as we read through the Old Testament that these offices are to be distinct. They're to be separate from one another. The three offices come together only in the person of Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king. But in human administration, the offices are to be kept separate and distinct. Israel's kings are not to serve as priests. We're going to see that very clearly. And on the other hand, Israel's priests don't serve as kings. Kings don't serve as priests. Priests don't serve as kings. This in utero becomes then the biblical basis for the modern principle of church-state separation. It is a biblical, yes, it is an Old Testament principle. The sphere of civil government is to be distinguished from the sphere of the church. Now, a lot of people today assume, and I've heard people say this before, they say there's no such thing as the separation of church and state in the Old Testament, uh, that they're, they're one and the same. That's actually not the case. There is a distinction between church and state in the Old Testament. We see it right from even before the law. We see it from the time of Moses and Aaron. Moses functioning as the head of state and Aaron functioning as the head of church. And by the way, understand I'm using the word church. Uh, I'm not saying that Israel was the church, but I'm I'm using it in terms of the uh, religious uh, overtones of that that word, the institution of of the state or of the religion, and so there is indeed in the Old Testament is a, a distinction between church and state. And I'm not going to spoil this for you, but as we go through the Book of Kings, we're going to see in living color what happens when this principle is violated, because we're going to encounter uh, a king later on who thinks that he can act as a priest, and we're going to see what God thought about that. And I'll just tell you this, it didn't turn out very well for the man. 
when, uh, when we do not follow God's rules, when we ignore the precepts of God's law, things don't go very well. And uh, we invite God to pour out his wrath and judgment upon us. Indeed, in modern times, when we violate this principle of church-state separation, we, want, we, we always run into trouble. This uh, has played out in different ways in different times in history. Think about the Middle Ages, the, the medieval period, when uh, the church, the Roman church, was trying to overstep her God-ordained bounds, and it was the sphere of the church, by and large, in the Middle Ages that was trying to swallow the sphere of the state. The church was trying to swallow up the state, and how did that work out? Well, it worked out in a pope that thought he was king. Read the history of the popes. They think they're kings. They act like kings. They, they, they think that all the other kings of Europe are in their pockets. And so they, they call the shots politically. And we see it, the tyranny, the bloodshed that resulted. Have you ever heard of the Inquisition? The burning of heretics where the, the Roman church is actually swallowed up the role of the state. God has never given the church the authority to burn heretics. We can excommunicate heretics, but we don't burn them. Capital punishment is the responsibility of the civil authority, not of the ecclesial authority. And so that was the case in the Middle Ages, the church trying to swallow the sphere of the state. Do we have that problem today? (laughs) No, we don't have that problem today. Today, in fact, we are seeing the opposite tendency all throughout the West. There is right now a strong, sustained effort on the part of Western government To swallow the church. This is the opposite. To swallow the sphere of the church. To treat the church as though the church is subservient to Caesar instead of Christ. And we've seen how this has played out over the past two years. This this COVID fiasco. The violation of church-state separation. It's a violation of our own statement of faith as Baptists. Here in Canada, the statist ideology widely uncritically accepted by I would say the majority of evangelical Christians who who acted as statists, the state meddling in the affairs of the Christian church, the civil magistrates dictating to the clergy on matters of worship. On matters of worship. Can, Can we baptize people with our hands? Can we pass around the Lord's table? They told us, no, you can't do that. Can you sing in church? We're commanded in in Ephesians to sing. And they, they say, no, you can't sing. Uh, we're commanded to gather. No, you can't do that either. Do you see the problem here? A lot of Christians didn't see it. You say, why, Pastor John, do you keep talking about this? Because it's a problem. <laughs> we got to get this straight. We got to get it straight. Because it's a problem. And the way that the church responded was 100% wrong. wrong, and that is the reason why we stood up against it, why others did the same. This was not a rebellious spirit. That's not where it came from. It wasn't from a rebellious heart. It was from a heart that says we need to be faithful to God and to be faithful to his word. In a far more dramatic and obvious way, we see the same problem, the same phenomenon of statism in communist nations such as China where the official state churches are, are nothing more than a propaganda wing of an antichrist government. You go to the state churches in China, they are nothing but the propaganda wing 
of Antichrist. Where are the true churches in China? Where are they? Underground. They're meeting secretly. They're meeting this very day in basements and barns and fields. That's the true church. The listing of the priest shows us Solomon understood the concept of church-state separation. The office of the king, distinct from the office of the priest, the king is not the head of the church. Some of the other names listed here, verses 1 to 6, these are members of what we would call today Solomon's cabinet. The cabinet members, various officials entrusted with the important administrative duties. There are two men listed here as secretaries. One man designated as a recorder. These are the men who are in charge of domestic and foreign policy. We might call them today the governor general. We might call them the the secretary of state. Benaiah, we've met him already in previous chapter. He replaces Joab as the leader of the military. Today we would call that a general. The list of Nathan's sons, the, the sons of the prophet Nathan, are functioning as advisors to the king. Finally, we see the mention of this man named Adoniram. Adoniram. Actually, another famous missionary. Adoniram Judson. That's an under, underappreciated name. So maybe we need a little Ad, Adoniram here at, at Rosedale. It's the suggestion. But um, in the Bible, unfortunately, Adoniram uh, was in charge of, of the forced labor in Israel. Now, uh, this book has chapter has a very positive tone. This is positive towards Solomon, but there's undertones here of, of danger. And there, there's some red flags here. This is, this is one of them. Now, do you remember uh, our introductory sermon? We looked at Samuel and uh, Samuel's warning about how the kings would behave. And Samuel warned the people. He said, if you guys really want a king like the other nations, he's going to conscript people to do stuff. He's going to take your children. He's going to force them to build uh, projects for him. He's going to take them as perfumers and bakers. And eventually you're going you're gonna to discover that you're like slaves. You're, you're under slavery to this king that you've asked for. Now, this was very common in the ancient Near East. It was expected. Kings enlist the service of slaves. When you conquer foreign nations, you get slaves. And if you don't have enough slaves from the foreign nations to do your work, then where do you get the labor force? Well, from your own people. You can script them. Now, we have modern equivalents to this. Has anybody here ever done jury duty before? Jury duty is a form of conscription. It's a civic duty. It's a civic responsibility. Uh, during a time of war, the government can conscript young men and uh, young women to fight in the military. Uh, enlistment uh, is low or there's high casualties on the battlefield, the government can use their powers of conscription. But in the ancient world, the royal powers of conscription were widespread and could be easily abused. Later on in the book of Kings, we're going to see how Samuel's warning came to fruition. Forced labor in Israel becomes the occasion for civil war. We're going to see that uh, in just a few weeks. And Solomon already planted the seeds for the type of tyranny that Samuel had warned about, but it seems that at this point, the king was not abusing his power. The king was not abusing the power of conscription. The people actually are consenting to it. They're, they're, they're consenting. They're accepting it. And so the names that are listed in verses 1 to 6, these are 
the priests and the members of Solomon's cabinet. These are the highest and the most trusted uh, administrators in the land of Israel. And then we move into 7 to 419. There's a second uh, group of names there. These are 12 officers placed over 12 administrative districts. And uh, the purpose here is for taxation, the support of the central government. We call that today the, the federal government. This is a form of federal taxation. Each district is responsible, the text says, for, for providing one month's worth of tax to the central government. And uh, the number 12 here, we might say, well, that, that number 12, that must just correspond to the 12 tribes. But when you read the territories here uh, carefully, you'll see that Solomon has modified the tribal boundaries. And he's done that because the, the tribes aren't all the same size. He's trying to spread out the burden of taxation so that the smaller tribes will not be overburdened in comparison with the larger tribes. This is is Solomon, again, trying to act justly in the matter of taxation. And so this whole section of text, all the names, all the responsibilities listed here, this is meant to give us as the readers a positive impression of Solomon. You're to come away from this chapter with a positive impression to say, wow, Solomon was a skilled administrator. He he was doing a good job. He structured the government for the good of the nation. And this is further evidence of Solomon's wisdom. He uses his authority for the good of others. And that's what authority is for. Authority is, is to be used for the good of others. Authority is not bad when it's being used properly. This brings us then to the second main division of the chapter and the second main point in the message today, and that is the importance of remembering God's promises. Verses 1 to 19, the primary focus of those verses is on the administration of Israel, the way Solomon is using wisdom and authority for the common good. But lest we give all of the credit here to Solomon and forget about the Lord, the next section of text calls to mind God's covenant promise to Israel, the fact that God is behind this. God is blessing Solomon's kingship. God is prospering the nation in accordance with his word and his law. And so you, we see this in verses 20 to 28. Now, 1 Timothy uh, 2, verse 2 in the New Testament, Paul urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, the Bible has a lot of teaching for us in helping us know the God-given purpose of civil authority. Why why does God uh, entrust authority? Why do we have a government, a civil government? Well, the Bible tells us. He says that he has ordained civil authority for our own good. For our own good and for his glory. He did not design the sphere of civil authority to swallow up every other sphere. He did not ordained the civil authority to do everything. No, he ordained many different spheres of authority. There's a sphere of the civil government. There's a sphere of the church. There's a sphere of of the family. These are all distinct from one another. If if I, as a pastor, I I hold an office in the church, the office of elder in the church that has authority within the boundaries that God defines in his word. If I show up at your house unannounced this week and and uh, say i want to see what you're feeding your kids for dinner 
and you say, oh, come on in, pastor. And I say, I notice that all the five food groups aren't represented. And I think this is a problem. And I'm going to have to bring it back to the elders. You know, what are you going to say to me? In a polite way, you're going to say, get lost. Get lost. Why would you say that? It's not my job. (laughs) It's not my job. It's not my sphere of authority. If I go out uh, to the corner of the traffic and uh, stand in the middle of the of the thing uh, traffic and start to direct traffic, and somebody says, "What are you doing?" I say, "Well, I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor." They're going to look at me and they're going to say. Did you stop taking your meds? It's not my job. I don't check your seatbelt when you come in. It's not my job. It's not my job. It's not the sphere of authority that God has given to me. We've got to get this straight. Honestly, guys, we've got to get this straight. God has designed various spheres of authority. He has not given the civil government carte blanche to micromanage Every aspect of your life and mine. They have not been given that authority. Now there are a, a number of bureaucratic governments that are highly organized. You think, of, you think of highly organized governments. You know some of the most highly organized governments in the world are communist governments. Highly, highly organized. Highly bureaucratic. Highly efficient. And what's the cost of it? Personal liberty. That's the cost. We think of communist, socialist governments in our world today. The government controls everything. And the people, in order to satisfy the bureaucracy, they live under the stifling eye of Big Brother, a bloated bureaucratic nanny state micromanaging the citizens, controlling what the people hear and see. And by the way, we've got a censorship bill before the Senate right now that will control what you hear and see on the Internet. This is not authority that God has given. Brethren, we ought to be concerned when the civil authority expands its powers beyond what God has said. Who determines the job description of a pastor? Do I determine it? I say, okay, if I feel like it today, I can go on the street and stop traffic. No. I don't, I don't get to determine the limits of my own authority. Who, de- who determines that? God determines it. Where do we find it? In the Bible. Okay? In the Bible. It is God who determines the limits and the boundaries of Caesar's authority. When Caesar operates within the boundaries, guess what? Government is a blessing. A tremendous blessing. We thank God for it. A nation flourishes. A nation prospers when the government limits its power to the things that God has ordained. What is that? Matters of public justice, rewarding righteousness, punishing wickedness. This is why Paul commands us to pray for the governing authorities. Why? So that they do their job. So that we can do what, Paul says? So that you and I can live a peaceful and quiet life. A peaceful and a quiet life. And so, brethren, if you want to obey Paul's command to pray for the governing authorities, you can pray this. That God gives them the wisdom to know their responsibilities and their limits. 
That's a specific way that you can obey that command. God, help our government to know their responsibility and their limit. And if you want to live a peaceful and quiet life, as Canadians have for many generations, but if we want to continue to live in this way, then inform yourself. Inform yourself before you go out and vote and only vote for men and women who know what the Bible says about civil authority. What's clear here in 1 Kings 4, Solomon knows his job description. Solomon is doing a good job as king. The nation is prospering. God's blessing them. Look at verse 20. This this is like the highlight of the chapter. Okay, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand in the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Isn't that an awesome statement? And then you go down the page, verse 25. It says, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So just an awesome testimony of God's blessing coming to a people through the institution of good government. This is a nation prospering. The citizens are enjoying food and drink. And they're, they're not, they can sleep at night because they're not afraid that they're going to get invaded by the enemies. And they, they have private ownership. Did you catch that? Each man under his fig, his own Private ownership. They, the, uh, the present states of the West say by 2030, we w- their goal is that we own nothing and are happy. The abolition of private ownership. The Bible teaches private property, private ownership, each man sitting under his own fig tree. Under Solomon's leadership, things are going well in Israel. God's covenant blessings are being enjoyed. Furthermore, these verses are written in such a way that we are reminded of God's ancient promise to Abraham and how those promises are being fulfilled in history. Do you remember what the promises God makes to Abraham? He says, Abraham, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And what does it say here in 1 Kings 4? Judah and Israel are as numerous as the sand. God's keeping his promise. God tells Abraham, Genesis 15, 18, he says, Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. And here's the borders, Abraham. It's going to be all the way from the Nile River in the south to the Euphrates River in the east. Now look at a modern map of Israel. You turn to the back of your Bibles. Look at a map of of Israel. Do the borders correspond to the Nile and the Euphrates? No, they don't. Not even close. God God promises territory to Abraham extending from the Nile in the south, the Euphrates to the east. Uh, This is territory today. It encompasses Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. And again here, 1 Kings 4, evidence God is fulfilling his promise through the kingship of Solomon. Look at what it says in verse 21. Does God keep his promise? You bet he does. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from where? From the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, that, by the way, is the border of the Red Sea, and all the way south to the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. This is the high watermark of Israel's territorial expansion. The book of Kings is being written in an intentional way so that we as the readers make the connection, God keeps his promises. When God makes a promise, he keeps it, 
and he fulfills it. There is wisdom then in remembering the promises of God and knowing that God keeps his word. Deuteronomy 28-29, God outlines the conditional nature of his covenant with Israel. He says, Israel, if you obey my law, you will be blessed in the land that I give you. If you disobey my law, Israel, you will be cursed in that land and you will be spewed out of it. You will go into exile. We see here in covenants, in Solomon's reign, evidence of God's covenant blessing, God's faithfulness, a reminder to Israel, a reminder to spiritual Israel, God keeps his word. But sadly, as we move through the book of Kings, we come to the latter part of Solomon's reign, we're going to see things can take a turn for the worse. Israel did not always enjoy the blessings of covenant fidelity. And eventually they turn away from the precepts of God's law. God removes his blessing from them as he said that he would do. Where is the high watermark? Where is the pinnacle of Israel? In history, it's right here in this chapter. This is the high watermark. This is, is as good as it got in the Old Testament. And as things go on, Israel is reduced to an insignificant vassal state. They are a vassal of Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Rome. In the Minor Prophets, the fourth chapter of Micah's prophecy, we read a word pointing us back towards the glory of Solomon's reign and also pointing us forward in history towards a time of greater fulfillment. Micah chapter 4 verse 4 says that there is coming a day when they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. Same, same phrase written after the exile or in the time leading up to the exile. National Israel experienced the blessing in a provisional way under the leadership of Solomon. But get this, in the new covenant, the spiritual Israel of God experiences the blessings of being in covenant with the same God. A covenant that is not limited to ethnic Jews, but a covenant that is open to all tongues, tribes, and people. And brethren, get this, one day you and I will see and experience the fulfillment of this promise. Micah 4.4 was written for you. And you and I will see the fulfillment of the promise under the rule and authority of King Jesus. And we are not going to be concerned at that time about piddly real estate in the Middle East. And we're not going to be concerned in that day about brick and mortar buildings in Jerusalem. Why not? Because... When that day comes, the whole earth is going to be God's temple. And the prophets say that God's glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Forget the Nile. <laughs> Forget the Euphrates. Uh, Andrew, a couple weeks ago in his sermon, he used the, that illustration of the, how God promises the, uh, the Ford uh, Focus. Apologies if you drive one. But God promises the Ford Focus and then he gives the Corvette. He gives the Corvette. This is, this is the promise that we, God fulfills his promises in such a lavish way. He just goes above and beyond. One day God's kingdom will visibly cover this whole planet. There will not be one square inch of real estate on this planet that will not be in visible subjection to our king. 
And the good news is this, friend. If you and I bow the knee to this king, we will live in that consummated kingdom forever. You and I will sit everyone under your vine and under your fig tree and no one will make you afraid. And Psalm 37 says, in that day you will look around for the evildoer and you won't be able to find him. Not even one. What an awesome promise God has given to his covenant people. What an awesome hope we have in the rule and the reign of our king. And so, brothers and sisters, while it is right for us to look and to work for good and righteous government in the present time, we ought not to despair, we ought not to be surprised when human governments fall short. Human governments will never reach the biblical ideal, and that's okay because something better is on the way. Something better is on the way. So there's great wisdom. Remember God's covenant promise. Do not grow discouraged in this world. Know that our king ultimately prevails over evil. He will not let one of his promises fall to the ground. He will answer every one of them. Well, so far in the chapter, we see the wisdom of planning well. We see the wisdom of remembering God's promise. Thirdly, and finally, the final verse is evidence of the prosperity that comes from the application of wisdom. This is verses 29 to 34. The prosperity that comes from the application of wisdom. Now, uh, we say the word prosperity in the evangelical church, and what do we do? We shrink back in horror. <laughs> you know, that, that word has just become so uh, tainted because of this so-called prosperity gospel, this group of charismatic heretics promoting greed, Presenting God as nothing more than the cosmic Santa Claus in the sky who exists to satisfy our own greed and carnality and covetousness. I detest it. I detest the prosperity heresy. We ought to all detest it. We ought to resist that heresy with every fiber of our being. It ought to be repulsive to us. But the prosperity heresy aside, hear this, Christian, prosperity is not a dirty word. There is indeed a biblical concept of prosperity. There is indeed a biblical expe expectation that things work out better in your life, things work out better in a country and in a society when we as individuals and when our society as a collective whole follows God's word when we submit to the precepts of God's law in our own lives and collectively as a society, things tend to go better. Why do you think it is today that people want to come to America? Did that just magically happen? It's because America and Western countries were founded on biblical precepts that led to flourishing, that led to prosperity. Why do you think people don't want to live in communist nations? Because Marxist ideologies lead to despair and poverty. This is a, a human utopia that takes the place of the kingdom of God. This is why God gives us the book of Proverbs. What are the Proverbs? It's practical wisdom that helps you to make good decisions in your life so that you honor God with your life and, and it leads generally towards greater blessing and prosperity. We know, for example, when we follow God's design for marriage and for sexuality and for the raising of our children, that society is strengthened. A biblical ethic of sexuality leads to strong families, strong marriages, strong marriages, strong families lead to a strong and healthy society in which everyone flourishes. 
We know that if we follow the Bible's teaching about debt, we don't become enslaved to lenders. We avoid the snare of greed. We use our money responsibly. If you do that, you will be in a stronger financial position. You'll be able to be more generous to others. The Bible is filled with practical wisdom that helps you to prosper in your life and that will lead to greater prosperity in society as a whole. And so, Christian believer, while you ought to avoid the prosperity heresy like the plague, you ought at the same time pursue a biblical vision of prosperity. Use wisdom to plan for the future. That's not a sin. It's a good thing to plan with God-given wisdom. It's a good thing to trust in God's promises. It's a good thing to order your life in a way that corresponds with God's written revelation. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that if you follow the precepts of God's word that you won't have any problems in your life. You still get the cancer diagnosis. Uh, Financial calamities can still happen. Okay? Habakkuk. Read Habakkuk. Righteous man who says, God, why are you letting this happen? He says, I don't get it. You know, we live in a fallen world. Sometimes bad things happen to righteous people. So this is not to say that you will never have problems in your life, but following biblical principles points in the direction of prosperity and flourishing. Solomon understood the importance of godly wisdom. We see in the concluding verses how God blessed that, how God prospered him as he used his gift of wisdom. And we're told in these verses that Solomon's exercise of wisdom, it set him apart from all the other sages and wise men in the pagan nations under Solomon's Leadership, Israel becomes a beacon of light to the nations. A beacon of light to the nations. In the same way, friends, we are told that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate. Something greater than Solomon is here. And we learn in the New Testament from the teaching of Jesus that we as the people of God in the New Covenant, we are a city on the hill. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We are the city on the hill. We are the salt the preservative in a world that will rot. You, Christian, are preservative. You, Christian, are a beacon of light in this dark world. What does that mean, practically? Well, it means this, that when non-believers in the surrounding culture look at Rosedale Baptist Church, and when they look at the families that compose Rosedale Baptist Church, and they look at the schools that we send our children to, and they look at the businesses, and they look at the the political values, and they say, look at the sexual ethics of these people, how backwards these people are. They're They're like living in Victorian England. The world looks at that, and they say something is different. Something is different about these people. How tragic that so many Christians today think that the way to win the unsaved world is to become just like them. You know, if, we, if, we, if the church can survive in this culture, we, we need to change. You know, the church must get with the times. Uh, or we're just going to die. You know, embrace depraved sexual behavior. Embrace disordered ideas about gender roles. Let the Trojan horse of Marxism into the church under the guise of social justice. The truth, friends, is that our witness in the world is found primarily in our distinctiveness from it. Do you understand that? That your witness in the world is not found in how much like 
the non-believer you are, but how distinct you are. God establishes the church for the reason he established Israel. We are to stand out against the dark backdrop of a depraved culture and to manifest the attributes of God's kingdom. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. During Solomon's time, the king of Israel stood out. There was something different about Solomon. He wasn't like the others. Verse 34, it says, People from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard about his wisdom. The nations coming to Israel. A beacon of light. Brothers and sisters, in a dark and depraved world that seems to be getting darker every day, don't be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to stand out from the crowd. Don't feel like you've got to hide your light under a bushel because you want to please men. I'm so over that. I'll just tell you that. I, I am so over it to be a man pleaser. I don't care what people think about me. My goal is to please God, not to please men. We must embrace our identity, and here's the King James translation, a peculiar people. A peculiar people. Shine brightly as stars in the universe, holding out the word of truth. Dare to be different in a world that wants to force you into its mold. <coughs> be a rebel. You know how you be a rebel in this world? Let me tell you rebellious activity in 21st century Canada. Here's how, you're, how, here's how you can be a real rebel. Go out and get married. Abstain from sex until you're married. Embrace the gender role that God gave you. Raise godly children in your home. Remember the Lord's Day to keep it holy. Go to church on Sunday. Raise your kids with the Christian worldview. Live as a Christian in the world. Send your kids out to influence the world. That's rebellion in the 21st century. Counterculture to the nth degree. You want to be a rebel? Live according to God's law. The world will hate you for it. They will gnash their teeth against you. They will pass bills in Parliament to censor you. And by God's grace, the world might just be changed. One final thing I find striking about these concluding verses, the fact that Solomon directed his wisdom towards a number of different pursuits, including an investigation of the natural world. What's described here in the concluding verses is what we would call today a scientist. And we see the contribution that Solomon made to biology. Verse 33, it says he spoke of trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. And he spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Before I was a pastor, I was a student in biology at the University of Guelph. And I find this aspect of the chapter fascinating. This was just the highlight for me. I say, wow, so Solomon liked science. He liked biology. What a reminder. Christians ought to be involved actively in a wide variety of different enterprises and vocations. Last week was Reformation Sunday. You know, one of the principles recaptured in the Protestant Reformation, the biblical truth 
Every vocation is holy when it's being done for the glory of God. Do you know that it's no more holy for me to stand in this pulpit with a shirt and tie on Sunday morning and preach the gospel to you than it is for the mechanic with hands covered in grease fixing your car? And it's no more holy for me to stand in this pulpit than for the garbage collector or for the engineer or the carpenter. If it's done for the glory of God, it is holy work. The stay-at-home mom, moms, the world has no respect for what you do. I have nothing but respect for you. Nothing but respect for you. It is a holy calling. There's a kind of pietism today in the church that thinks that almost nothing done outside of the sphere of the church is important to God. They say, well, the world, world's going to burn anyway, so let's just, let's just work on getting souls up in the rapture, souls uh, into heaven. Listen to this, friends. We talked about this in Sunday school. God created you, Genesis 1, God created you to be his image bearer here on the earth. You understand that? You are his image bearer here on the earth. He gave us a cultural mandate in the book of Genesis that we would exercise dominion over creation. And so, Christians, as God's image bearer here on the earth, we ought not merely to concern ourselves with the saving of souls. And don't go home today and, pa and say, Pastor John doesn't think it's important that, we're, that people are saved. He just doesn't think that's important. Nonsense. Very important. Extremely important. Central. But it's not the only important thing. There are other important things that... Everyday affairs of life, our God-given responsibility of exercising dominion. Today, most people think about science as being totally antithetical to Christianity. Solomon reminds us, scientific inquiry glorifies the Creator and it fulfills the cultural mandate. And so get, get this, Christians, if you're unhappy about the atheistic delusion of modern science, then do something about it. Go, go out and, and, and be a a, a scientist who glorifies God. And if they don't publish your papers in the accepted journals, make your own journal. Make your own peer-reviewed journal. If they won't accept it, who cares? If we're unhappy about the Marxist drift of politics and cultures, let's do something about it. Let's teach people a biblical worldview so that the Marxists don't get to do it. If you're concerned about the collapse of family values in Canadian society, do something about it. Show the world what a family rightly ordered looks like. You say, I don't know what to do about the world. I feel so helpless to do anything about the world. Well, here's something that you can do. You can't fix a family down the street. You can't discipline your neighbor's kids. How about you start at home? How about you fix your own house? How about you discipline your own children, raise your own children, invest in your own marriage? You say, I, I don't like the spiritual apostasy and shallowness of the Canadian church. Well, neither do I. Let's do something about it. Let's show our fellow Christians what a faithful biblical church looks like. Let's raise up pastors and church planters and send them out. You say, I'm not happy about the moral cesspool that produces the entertainment of our culture. Well, let's do something about it. Let, let's raise up a generation of Christians who will produce God-glorifying art. You say, well, art's a waste of time because the world is going to burn. No, it's not. 
Art and culture glorifies God. Glorifies God. We don't like the entertainment, then let's, let's make some art that glorifies God. Instead of only seeing church work as being valuable for the purposes of the kingdom, let's choose to see every vocation as holy to the Lord. Everything is important to God's purpose on earth. Hear this, friends. This is probably the most important part of the sermon. God's wisdom is not confined to the four walls of this room. Do you understand that? This isn't the only important thing that happens in the world. This is very important, but it's not the only important thing. As his image bearers, we have a job to do. Are you doing it? Are you faithfully bearing the image of God? Are you fulfilling the purpose for which God put you on the earth? 1 Kings 4 is filled with lists and names. This seems like a chapter to skip. This is such an important chapter. Filled with practical principles for how to live in the world, for how to apply the wisdom God has given, how to bear the divine image, how to look for the future consummation of God's kingdom and to work towards it. A kingdom in which we will all enjoy the perfect wisdom of King Jesus, the greater Solomon, and in which every one of us who knows this king will sit each man and each woman under his own fig tree. Even so come, Lord Jesus.